Psalm 50, and I would encourage you to stand as I read. I'm going to read the whole thing. This is the word of the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Our God is coming. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes him, and a storm rages around him. On high he summons heaven and earth in order to judge his people. Gather my faithful ones to me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God is the judge. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. But God says to the wicked, What right do you have to recite my statutes and to take my covenant on your lips? You hate instruction and fling my words behind you. When you see a thief, you make friends with him, and you associate with adulterers. You unleash your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for deceit. You sit maligning your brother, slandering your mother's son. You have done these things, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you, but I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. Understand this, you who forget God. Or I will tear you apart, and there will be no one to rescue you. Whoever offers a thanksgiving sacrifice honors me, and whoever orders his conduct, I will show him the salvation of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and the richness of your presence, the richness of the legacies that we have received from the mothers you have given, from the grandmothers you have given, from the aunts and cousins, for women in our lives who have poured into us to shape us. We thank you for that providential impact, something purposed by you. We thank you for your word and its living character. That your word is God-breathed, it is inspired, inerrant, that in here, here you speak to us. We hear your voice in your word, so God, Holy Spirit, would you come and bring your word upon our hearts with power to accomplish your will. Would you raise the dead today, those who are spiritually far from you? Would you convict the mighty? Would you build up the afflicted? Would you accomplish what you have brought us here to do, but above all, Would you be worshipped? Would you be cherished? Would you be treasured? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth, 
that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Would you speak? Speak, Father. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I'm kind of... No, I'm not really. My mom's not. I was going to say, my mom's not here so I can tell you all the stories. But we're online and she's watching. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, mom. They're all good. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I think about, I'm always tempted on Mother's Day to preach from that uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 where Paul reminds Timothy of the, the faith that dwelt in his grandmother and then in his mother. Uh, that there's something about uh, a, a mother's love, obviously, but there's also something about a mother's faith. The church father, Augustine, uh, who is the, he was called the Bishop of Hippo. And if you could have one title in church history, let me be the Bishop of Hippo. Uh, it was a place, it's not the animal, uh, it was a place in northern Africa. And he died in the early 400s. Um, that's irrelevant. But he, he, he didn't know Jesus for the longest time. He, he came to faith as a, as a young man, as a grown man. And his mother's name was Monica. And Monica prayed for Augustine. Day in and day out, she prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him to come to know the Lord Jesus. And she prayed and she prayed and she prayed. And this young man who was very, I mean, if you go read, go read Augustine's Confessions or his City of God or on the Trinity or on Christian doctrine or whatever. And you'll begin to realize that he is profoundly smart um, but he was brought to faith by the mighty hand of God. It's a wonderful story that I will leave for you to go discover. But it was his mother's prayers. And Augustine knew that his mom was praying for him. I likewise could testify of my, my mom reading her Bible and of praying, you know, seeing her pray and hearing her pray and seeing my grandmother reading the scriptures and hearing her pray for her children and her grandchildren, seeing them present at baptisms and my bad being, I was baptized by my grandfather and I was, we were, they were there and seeing these things, there was a lasting impact, but there's something particular that there's an intersection with our Psalm that I want to point out, maybe. Uh, that's something that my, my mother and my grandmother always encouraged me, and this is going to sound rather um, maybe cliche, uh, but to, to not be fake, uh, to not that you don't have to put on airs, or maybe a more technical way to say it, in, in, in terms of your, not just in life, but in terms of your, before I karate chop that off the pulpit here, uh, but not just in life, but um, in life in the church, your, your faith before the Lord, that, that another, maybe a technical word would be called formalism. And because formalism breeds hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is? You're saying one thing, you're putting on a mask, you're doing one thing and you're not the other. Well, despite the admonitions and example of both my mom and my grandmother and other 
people in my life. That very much marked my life before I really started following Jesus was hypocrisy and formalism. I knew what it was in the context of the church. And if you're a member of Blaney, you know some of the story. I knew what it was to to be a a church guy, even as a young man. I knew what it was, what it it took, the language and the jargon and the activities. I knew when to, to stand up. I didn't even need the asterisk next to it in the order of service. I knew when to stand. I knew when to sit. I knew when to go to Sunday school. I knew all these sorts of things. And yet there was breeding in me a hypocrisy because in one arena of life I would live a certain way in another arena of life I would live a different way and ultimately these things were rooted out by or rooted in the fear of man and really pleasing people I wanted people to speak well of me and this is an intersection with our psalm because this psalm as one commentator put it this is about loyalty towards God loyalty towards God and that loyalty towards God is antithetical with formalism and hypocrisy as the Lord requires a heart of gratitude formalism formalism being that you're you're just you're going through the motions you're going through the form you're you're standing up when you're supposed to stand up you're sitting down when you're supposed to sit down you're going to church when you're supposed to going to church and you're singing the songs and searing the message and you're putting on the show you're going through the form of it but there is no heart of gratitude and maybe if i'm going to shoot at a target today if i, I don't really i don't even really know how to play darts i used to have a dartboard and it was always Just bullseye or nothing. I'm sure there's a game to it. But anyways, if I was going to shoot at something today, it would be that formalism and hypocrisy, these rank sins in the eyes of God, are not rooted out by legalism and more formalism, but they're rooted out by thankfulness. Hypocrisy dies at the sword in the hand of a grateful heart. Formalism crumbles with the genuineness of thanksgiving. And thanksgiving then becomes the great fountain from which the Christian life flows. There's a Protestant catechism, and we've done a little bit of catechetical work. If you want to sound really smart this week, you say catechetical uh, it just means that we ask questions and it's question and answer, okay? Or, you know, we've done some of those in the worship service where we've had questions and answers and such. But the Heidelberg Catechism was a, is a great Protestant uh, catechism that is built around three pieces. It's built about, up around uh, guilt, grace, gratitude. That every one of us stands guilty before God because of our sin. We desperately need the grace of God extended to us in the gospel of Jesus. And the fuel of our lives as Christians is gratitude. It's thanksgiving. And when you've begun to experience that that flow, when you begin to see the the height or maybe the depth of your own guilt and then the wonder of God's grace towards you in Jesus... Grace being this unmerited move of love in your direction, something that you don't deserve, that Jesus died for you in your place. When you begin to experience that, you begin to experience not just the, the mechanism of the cross that we talk much about, Jesus dying and rising and ascending, but you, you meditate on the, the greatness of who Jesus is, that He's not just some regular guy. 
That He's the second person of the Trinity. That, that He took on. He didn't account equality with God as something to be grasped, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. But He made Himself nothing. Taking on the form of a man, the form of a servant. And was obedient to death, even death on a cross. When He began to see who, who Jesus is, the wonder of His grace begins, it ought to at least, begins to captivate. And when you ca- are captivated by the wonder of the grace of God, that is the beginning of new life in us. And at the very heart of the new life that we have in Jesus ought to reside thankfulness. Ought to reside thankfulness. But too often in the way that we coach people up, if you will, in the faith, the way that we disciple and the way that we encourage people to follow Jesus, too often, because we might not know any better, we, we coach them up in formalism and potential hypocrisy rather than coaching them up in thankfulness. That there is something durable about thankfulness. That the Apostle Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, be rejoice. In all circumstances, be thankful. Be thankful all the time. Rejoice again. I say rejoice that there's, there's a linkage between worship and thankfulness and joy and endurance and perseverance that we talked about last week. But the threat of formalism and hypocrisy is not a new one. And this is something that plagued the people of Israel. It plagued the people of Israel as this psalm is being written, as God is being pictured as descending in a storm. Our God is coming in verse 3. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes Him. And a storm rages around Him. Where else do we see God coming in like, like circumstances? Alright, you know what this is? I'm not doing YMCM. This is a mountain. My, suit is, it does, my shirt is way too tight for that. Uh, he comes on the mountain of Sinai, right? When God, what God comes to Moses, He comes in the cloud. Looks like the, our God is a consuming fire, consuming the top of the mountain. That is a picture of God's nearness where, where holiness approaches the weakness and fallibility of humanity. There is a storm. But our psalm begins before that. Why is such a storm present when God Comes. The, there are three titles of God used in the very outset. He is the mighty one, El. That's the Hebrew there. He is God. He is Elohim. And then the Lord, or Yahweh, or if you're old school, Jehovah. It's okay. It's cool to be old school. Um, so he's El. He's Elohim. And he's Yahweh. He is the mighty one who is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over heavens and earth. And he's sovereign, meaning he's in control. He's the ruler. He's the boss. He's the whatever. He's above it. He's above everything because everything was made by him. There's nothing that exists outside of the create. There's only God, the creator and the created. So all of the nebula that we continue to discover through the, the wonder of science Those were created by God and He is the mighty one over those. He thought them up. They are there because God said they would be there. He's sovereign over the things that we don't know, but He's also the mighty one over you. He has creator rights over all that exists because He is the creator of everything that exists. He is the mighty one. He is God. Again, this point, this is the Elohim is the title of God that shows up in Genesis chapter 1. 
In the beginning, God, Elohim, said, let there be light. And there was light. Thanks, guys. So he is the creator that he enters in with purpose to make out of nothing. And he doesn't just make Grand Canyons and Mount Everests, or just one of those, I suppose. But he makes you and he makes me. He makes people that are in his image. And then he is the Lord. When scripture in your Bible, that is probably L-O-R-D, all caps, that is a personal name of God that is revealed within the context of a covenant relationship. Now, this idea of covenant, I don't have a lot of time to press into it, but it shows up throughout this psalm. That God enters into freely, without constraint upon Him, He freely enters into a covenant relationship. A, a bond sealed in blood is what one author, how one author defines a covenant. But it is God entering into relationship and because He is the greater, He enters into the lesser, the Creator enters into a covenant relationship with the lesser, the creature, the Creator sets the terms of the relationship. This idea of covenant is is adopted within the ancient Near East as a, a bigger king, say a king from Assyria, was coming to conquer a king in Israel. The greater king with the greater resources and the greater army would come and before they conquered Israel, they would issue, they would try to enter into or possibly enter into a covenant. But the covenant is always, the terms of the covenant is always set. This is going somewhere, I promise. It's not just like biblical theology lesson because that enthusiasms, enthusiasms, that's not a word. It gives me enthusiasm, obviously, but some of you are like, can we talk about something else yet? Patience. Every, every word, right? All of scriptures breathe. God, God breathe. So that God enters into covenant with his people that as a greater king would enter into covenant with a lesser king, the greater always sets the terms of the relationship. You understand? But too often, particularly in our modern conceptions of God, we enter into covenant with God and we want to set the terms of the relationship. This is what it means to follow you. This is what I need to obey. This is what I need to believe. This is what my worship ought to look like. This is how many days a week I should be engaged in following you. I'm going to set the terms. God, you now sign up for it. Right? We subvert the creator-creature distinction. We subvert God over his people distinction because we want to be our own bosses. And this, again, is not something new. We diminish God in our thinking so that we can have our own way. And we believe that within the hollow shell of formalism, where we walk the walk and we might talk the talk and we might talk the talk, we might walk the walk, but whenever it pleases us, this isn't new, it showed up for Israel, but God is reminding them and He is reminding us that He is the mighty one over all, and He summons twice in the beginning, first six verses of this psalm, He summons the heavens and the earth. He issues a call to all that there is. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. All of creation is summoned as a jury, if you will, for the judge. This is not the only place in Scripture. There are numerous places, in fact, where God calls heaven and earth as witnesses against His people. 
For the heavens proclaim His righteousness. Creation proclaims and demonstrates the glory of God. And it is now being summoned as a witness, a testimony against. This isn't a testimony against the nations. This is a testimony against the people of Israel. That God is the judge. He is the judge of all peoples and all places and all times. But here... In Psalm 50, he is the judge of his people. Now, immediately, when I say judge, you have negative connotations. Right? You're just thinking sledgehammer. You're thinking jail cells. You're thinking condemnation. You're thinking all of those things. And and some of that is right. But that is not the complete picture of a judge in Scripture. If you've ever read the book of Judges... You know that a judge in Scripture not only decides the case, but he's also the deliverer. Remember that cycle in the book of Judges? The people did whatever was right in their own eyes, and God brought whatever it is. He brought the Midianites, or He brought whoever. And and the people sank down, and at the bottom they cry out to the Lord. And then as they cry out for help, God sends them a judge. And the judge begins to set, should, many of them don't operate as they ought to, but God, that, that judge delivers the people. Just, just take Gideon, for example. God raises up Gideon, this, this puny man who has very, very, a very, very small picture of himself. God takes this man and makes him a judge and through him delivers Israel from the hand of the Midianites through really miraculous means. But the judge delivers. So the judge both can condemn what you automatically think about, but the judge also is the deliverer. That the judge is the one who crushes the wicked, who sets down the wicked, but also is the one who brings up the afflicted weak. So he says, for God is the judge. And then we have these two pieces. Um, We have 7 through 15 and then 16 through 23. 7 through 15, God is speaking to his, his people who are faithful, but they're bound up in the formalism. They're bound up in the hypocrisy. They're bound up in putting on a show. And then 16 through 23, he speaks explicitly to the wicked who are a part of the covenant community. So within the people of Israel, there are both those, there is a distinction made between those who are sincerely trying to follow the Lord, who might be caught up in formalism and even hypocrisy, and then there are those who are explicitly described as wicked. Within the same people. I think we, we just read in Numbers. Um, we read, if you're following the Bible reading plan that we're on, we read that a mixed multitude came out of Egypt. And that's not just like an ethnically mixed, but a faithfully mixed. That within the people of Israel that came out of Egypt, there are those who are faithful to the Lord and those who are unfaithful to the Lord. And it is the unfaithful ones who poison the lot by their murmuring and their complaining. So, 7 through 15, we have those who are. My people, I will speak and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Sometimes, or oftentimes, or maybe all the time, that the way the Lord accomplishes redemption in your life requires a little bit of pain. It requires sacrifice. You can even look at the gospel. That God redeems through judgment poured out on the Son of God. 
That's not just a one-time pattern. That's a one-time sacrifice. But the pattern is present. That the Lord means to bring His people out of formalism, to bring them out of hypocrisy, to liberate them from pretending so that they can authentically follow. But it requires testimony against. And sometimes, particularly when we have when we flip-flop things and we think that we can describe what it is to follow the Lord, we have very little patience for the Lord's convicting voice. We've been schooled to run away from these things. We've been schooled and even conditioned by modern thinking and modern Christian literature that that conviction or guilt or shame is something that we ought to automatically run from. But sometimes those are the means by which the Lord isn't counseling us to run from them, but He's counseling us to run to Jesus. That the conviction of the Lord coming on your life is a means by which you ought to run to Jesus. Remember that that paradigm, guilt, grace, gratitude. If you never understand your guilt before God, you'll never understand, one, your need of grace, two, the wonder and amazing character of the grace of God. If you are content and self-satisfied where you are, then you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply an add-on that can be tacked on to the end of your story to deliver you into heaven one day and to save you from hell. But dear one, you are much in a much more precarious position if you are outside of Jesus. Your guilt stands no matter your perception of it. Even if you don't quite believe it, even if you don't quite agree with it, we are condemned by our sin and we are desperately needy people. So he begins to, he says, I don't rebuke you for your sacrifices. Now, thankfully, we've we've mentioned this before, if you're curious, we don't do that anymore. If you're new to church, right? Um, There is no like secret lamb slaying station around um your 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 pets are safe here oh, i have a really funny story i can't we don't have time to tell it but uh that's a that's a teaser you can ask me later i don't rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings which you continually put before me i don't i'm not rebuking you for the exterior character of your religious life i'm not rebuking you for coming to church. I'm not rebuking you for getting baptized. I'm not rebuking you for taking in the Lord's Supper. I'm not rebuking you for singing the songs or even raising your hands. I'm not rebuking you for reading your Bible or praying. All of those things are good and commanded by God. Same thing for the people. They're doing what God had commanded them, but God is concerned not just with your outward shell, but He's concerned about your heart. He's concerned about your heart. He's concerned about your reasons and your motives and your loves. What is precious to you? Because they began to presume that their worship was adding something to God. And when you believe that what you do in worship, that that you sing so great, or you show up so much, or you sing so well, or you give so much, that never happens. <laughs> that you give so much, 
That somehow now you're, you're giving God all of this as though you were able to put God in your debt. Or even as you were able to put God's people, the church, in your debt. As though your checkbook were able to buy you favor. Or your attendance, it buys you clout. That is a presumptuous position. That is the position of formalism and hypocrisy that kills any thankfulness. You cannot simultaneously believe that God is somehow indebted to you, somehow owes you something, and be thankful to Him for what He has done for you in Jesus. It doesn't work that way. You can't believe that God owes you while at the same time saying, I owe God. Then you would believe that you're square when you're not. God says, I I will not take a bull from your household, for every animal of the forest is mine. All of those animals that you're sacrificing to me, they're already mine. All of that time that you believe you're giving to Jesus by doing church things, which are good, please, right? Follow Jesus in obedience. But if you believe that all of these good things that you're doing is somehow indebting God to you, you've missed that the time that you're spending already belongs to Him. The breath in your lungs already belongs to Him. The heartbeat, the fact that the, the, whatever those things are called that pacemakers have to replace, right? That the electrical things are doing what they ought to make your heartbeat. That is from Him. Not only is your time and your life and your vitality and the neurons and the synapses in your brain, all of that is due to Him and because of Him, but your money is already His. Your, your house And your car and this building and this pulpit, it all belongs to Him. He's already said it, right? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. There is nothing that you can give me that I don't already have. There is no lacking in God. He is completely full and satisfied within the context of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is not asking you to come and fill in some gap of His existence so that He can finally be happy and self-satisfied. He's already satisfied. He's already perfect. He's already whole. What He's offering you is to bring His wholeness into your brokenness, but you have to open up the brokenness first. There can be no thankfulness No thanksgiving for self-satisfied people who believe they have things to offer God that He has not already given. God gives. He gives the life that you have and the abilities and the talents and the personality and the, the job and the work and the money and the buildings and the family. He gives all of that so that you can demonstrate. He gives all of that so that you can demonstrate His worthiness by what you do with it. If you make four digits or if you make eight digits or whatever else is beyond that, all of it is given so that you can show how much Jesus is worth. Because it, but that shifts. And what you need to see is that what we are talking about here isn't just stewardship, right? what you do with stuff, but we're talking about worship. They're talking about the bulls and the lambs and the goats. We're talking about worship. 
God cares very much about His worship. He cares about the form of His worship, but He cares about the heart. You put yourself in a more precarious position when you sing songs you don't mean, maybe. Not just like I'm struggling today or I'm distracted today, but that you have no, no, you never really are thankful. You you really don't have that kind of heart for your home. Ever. Not just that you struggle with it. God cares about your heart. And if He already owns all of this, when you begin to see God's fullness and His perfection, it changes the narrative and it changes the nature of our worship. It's not as though on Sundays God tells all of His people, hey, get together and sing songs to me, because on Sundays, that's usually my blue day. And I just, I just need, I need to pick me up. Right? But somehow, we somehow believe that that's how God operates. That His existence is so cast and leaning upon ours. That not only robs us from true thanksgiving, but it robs us from true worship. And somehow God were dependent on us. If I, I thought it was coming through the speakers for a second. I was like, what is going on? Um, if I were hungry, I would tell you. I would not tell you for the world and everything in it is mine. And then he says, offer a thanksgiving sacrifice. This is the heart of gratitude. Gratitude rejoice, receives joyfully. Gratitude rests humbly. Gratitude restores diligently. You begin to see that these things, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and this sort of outward formalism, that if you, if you live only in outward formalism, not only will it distract you from the true worship of God because you have no thanks, thankfulness toward Him, but it will distract you from true love of neighbor. Because you will have no compassion. Formalism, hypocrisy, self-satisfaction, and pride will not only ruin us with, for thankful worship, but it will ruin us from sincere service and love of neighbor. Almost everywhere else in the Old Testament where God starts talking about how He is not accepting the, the worship of His people. He's not accepting their sacrifices. He's not accepting their songs. It's because they are not pursuing love of neighbor with genuineness. We've read it this week. I believe it was in Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to tidy up shop here in a minute, I promise. But he says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, What are your sacrifices to me? asks the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to me, come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. 
Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And then we love verse 18. Come, we we probably did not like the rest of that. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Not only is our worship corrupted by proud, self-satisfied hearts that live in formalism, but so will love of neighbor be corrupted. Do you see how the two, two tables of the Ten Commandments, if you're following along on Wednesday nights, are ruined by self-satisfied formalism. And what we need, what we need is to be reminded, not just of our thankfulness that we ought to have for Jesus, which should be pinnacle, but that we, have a, we ought to be thankful for life. That you have today you don't, have tomorrow, you don't have tomorrow, and you don't have yesterday. No matter how many pictures you have, you don't have it any longer. It's a memory. It's a, it might be precious and good. There are painful ones too. But what you have is today. And you have today by the grace of God. You have today by the grace of God too. Right? The Apostle Paul says, today is the day of salvation. The writer of Hebrews quotes the psalm by saying, today if you hear the the Lord's voice, do not harden your hearts. That today is the day to respond to the Lord. Today is the day to be thankful to Him. Today is the day to look to Jesus and say, yes, I am guilty, but in you I have grace to be forgiven. Though my sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Today! Today is the day. And if you have a tomorrow, that will be today, tomorrow. Let's not get too confused. But offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. Say, Lord, the life I have is is yours. The money I have is yours. The talent that I have is yours. The relationships that you've given is yours. The work that I have is yours. The 401k that I have or might not have or 403b if you're a teacher or whatever you got is yours. And my heart above all else. My life is yours. Not just because He has made you. It's already His. But Christian... You're able to say, I have been bought with a price. And I'm no longer my own. I'm Jesus's. And when you begin to see, you begin to see the guilt, but you begin to see the grace. All of a sudden, you feel it's not, it's not indigestion. You got gratitude percolating in your heart. There's thanksgiving being born there. And the thanksgiving of God, towards God, conquers formalism. Thanksgiving towards God conquers hypocrisy. And thanksgiving towards God is the recipe for true worship and 
true love of neighbor. So dear ones, look to Jesus. And if you have never trusted the Lord, if you've never asked Christ into your life, into your heart, if you've never repented of your sins and trusted that Jesus is enough, forgiveness before God is offered to you. His wholeness is extended to your brokenness. Today is the day for you to follow Jesus. And I pray that you would. Whatever the step that He would have you to take. Forsake formalism and hypocrisy. And may we plead with the Lord to have hearts of thankfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would cultivate in us true thankfulness, true gratitude. Gratitude that receives joyfully. That receives the good things from your hand. The gift of air and breath and health and sunrises. But thankfulness also tells us that we can receive the painful bits too. That we can remember those painful memories. And even the painful present. And we can know that you are working all things for the good of those who love you. And are called according to your purpose. We can receive Christ joyfully. And we can rest humbly. Would you cultivate thankfulness in us. That you would be truly worshipped. That we would find true joy in you. And that the world may know that we are a thankful people by the way we love our neighbors, the way we share the gospel, the way way that we extend wholeness into the brokenness of the world. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.